today will be from book of Joel, chapter 3. I know that uh, Pastor Howard uh, usually preaches from the ESV uh, this morning in our bulletin. It just so happens that this uh, is from the NIV. So if you have a, a ESV Bible, it would be a little different for you. But Joel chapter 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they have scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have I against now what have you against me, Tyra and Sidon, and all your regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of their places to which you sold them. I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near and the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The Lord, I'm sorry, the earth and the heavens will trample. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I the Lord, your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Achaeus. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste because of of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. 
Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. Today, uh, I'm, I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor here at uh, Christ uh, Central Church. And today we wrap up our sermon series um, through the book of Joel. And I must say, it has been quite a ride if you've been on the journey with us. But before we finish it off, I want to say a couple of things. First, that I praise God for Charles McKnight, our pastoral assistant, in a sermon last week. Uh, good job, but I told him not to be too good. And one way of being too good is to preach under 20 minutes. He preached under 20 minutes. He was still good, unlike Pastor Brown preaching long. Thanks for, not, for helping me not look too bad. You did good. But he still undercut me by having a short scripture reading. And then he made light of it. Still has a lot to learn. No, just kidding. Yes, from the long passage in your bulletin, it's a sure sign that the senior pastor is back. I also don't want you to overlook the obvious, this new pulpit. You see this thing? It was built by our very own Brad Spinks. Brad, go ahead and stand up over there. Right, right, right over there, that brother right there. I mean, he built that, that bench over there. Uh, let me tell you, from doing your tattoos to taking pictures to painting things to baseboards and tiles, brother, God has blessed you with a great gift, and I appreciate it. All right, back to Joel now. As you can, we conclude our journey, I must tell you that this sometimes, oh yeah, youth, welcome back. Welcome back, youth. I, I, I used to be a youth pastor, and uh, those mission trips were great. I'm so glad everybody's back in one piece. Um, Randy looked really tired. Um, so thank you, Randy, uh, so much. For your hard work, and she's the administrator, so she comes back, has to do a bunch of stuff. So thank you, Randy, um, for everything. Um, thank you, Josh, for being without your woman for a week. So I know that's hard. So um, all right, we're going to get back into Joel somehow. As we conclude our journey, is where I was. I must tell you that this hard path this prophet has taken us through lands in a good place. Dare I say it, a happy ending. Which is what we need to hear more of. Because truth be told, we still live in a dark and hard world. And it is easy for us to forget, to fret, to fall down and not get back up, to be hopeless and hapless in how we live this life. So why should we walk on and hope on with this God of the Bible? Because as Joel is declaring here, he is a God and the God of reparation. A God who promises to reverse misfortunes, who will make all things unbroken. He is the God of retribution, restitution, and reward. Joel, in this last chapter of his prophetic book, is declaring that God is promising retribution, 
payback to avenge on and destroy anything or anyone who gave God's people a hard time. In your reading in verses 1 through 8, God reviews the things that the neighboring nations have done to his people, taking them into slavery, taking the the devoted things in the Lord's temple as their own treasure, and actually taking God's treasures to their idol temples. He is reviewing how they took God's land and he divided up among people who didn't even live there and took it away from his own people. In verse 2, it says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations that have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Joel and using the biblical allusion is, is beckoning back to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It beckons back to the story in the Bible when God destroyed and dealt with this massive army with his own hands, without, his, without God's people ever actually having to engage in an all-out war. It was clear to all that God was dealing with the enemies of his people for his people. You see, God is and has always equated mistreating his people with disrespecting him. And so he takes it personally when his people are abused and mistreated and and demeaned and misused. So he is saying for all the surrounding nations who throughout the history of Israel and the ancient Middle East, who out of disrespect for him thought they could get away with injuring and demeaning his people when they were at the weakest, have another thing coming. Somehow, God is going to make them know the pain of their injustices. That since they enslaved his people, their people will get enslaved. The way they devalued his people, selling children for a night with a prostitute and a bottle of wine that they drank in one sitting. God is saying, I will make sure, as sure as I am God, that my people are avenged for that. That these God and God people haters will know with justice what their injustice was like. There is a real irony, though, about God's avenging promise. These nations and their powers, according to what God himself said in the Bible, were used by him. They were instruments of God. They were tools in God's hands to discipline, to spank his people, if you will, for their sin as a, as a corrective. He, God, allowed his people to be taken into slavery and to be occupied and controlled by evil nations to correct and teach his people a lesson of disobedience. But let me let you know what the Bible also teaches. There is no just war when it comes to the grand scheme of things. In other words, these nations still made God's people suffer. Out of their own hearts of disrespect of the God of Israel and his people, God is saying they will still pay for messing with and mistreating his people, albeit my disobedient people. I watched a movie that in depth explored the story one of those after-school special kind of things. But a 14-year-old that got caught up with an online sex predator. Now, she totally disobeyed her parents. She snuck around. 
And even when the age of the man online kept creeping up from a college student until she finally met him, he was a 40-something-year-old man, at each breaking point, she kept going. And then she goes to the hotel room with him. And then after the man breaks off contact and everything gets found out, she, she, she fights her parents and the cops and the counselors for her love for this man. Do you think the dad thought or responded to the sexual predator with a thanks for teaching my daughter a good lesson about disobedience? No, dude went ballistic. He was at a volleyball game and he thought he thought he knew the man who did it. He just grabbed somebody's dad out the stand and beat him in the face. He's avenging. On the person who sinned against his child who was vulnerable, who was vulnerable because of her sin. No one in here who would have a child wander off after over and over telling them not to, if abducted would say, and found, would say, it's only my kid's fault. No problem for your kidnapping or abusing them. God is better and a more jealous and loving parent than any of you could be. And he is promising to avenge in the world of people and things that sinned against you, his people, even if your sin was involved, to avenge for what abused you. Even if you foolishly were open to the abuse, God is promising straight justice where two wrongs is two wrongs and both will be dealt with. More than that, God's vengeance is driven by the fact that his people, those he called to be his children, good or bad acting, are God's most precious and promised earthly possession. And he is saying, I am not going to let anything or anyone get away with what was ever done or ever been done to you during this life. And Joel, as with other prophets, do not tell us when and in what exact way God will avenge. You know, judgment and timing and demands on things, we shouldn't do that. Going around cursing folk in the name of Jesus. And see, God don't like ugly, that's why that happened to you. Going around saying stuff like that and, you know, (laughs) understand though. Though we don't know and are not the judge and are not the jury and not the enforcers of God's equalizing justice, there is still a sense that scripture refers to where God will cause our opponents to know the pain of their own sin and ill towards God and his people. Now or in the future, publicly or privately, but for sure. But I must tell you, but I must let you know rather, That in God's scope of retribution, he promises to destroy and crush the competition. Look with me at verse 9. We're going to read through this together. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. 
Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to, up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And the heavens and the earth quake. God is calling all the nations and their powers and everybody. Thus the line about making weapons out of farm equipment. He is infuriating and irritating. Even the non-fighting, subtly, quietly, not happy with God or his people types. To bring all of their pride and angst and know-how and bling and flash and all the ways they are proudly and silently opposed to God and his people to meet him in battle. God is literally... Picking a fight with those who don't respect him. Not only people, but the implication here is all the principalities and powers and evil and demonic forces and God's with them. Because back in that day, it was a clash of the titans. When people went into battle, they felt like their gods were battling. So God is calling the gods of the nations, the satanic and evil and principalities and forces over and in those nations, all of the philosophies and thinkings to meet him in the valley. God is saying, here's your chance. You've been wanting to challenge me all your life. Here is your chance to challenge me as God and my people and my Bible and my way. And as expected, the nations and their powers and forces and evil and intellects and knowledge and sin take God up on it. They gather in a valley happily, excited, incensed. A valley battle is the cage match of the Middle East back in that day. What it means, you all down in the middle, somebody ain't going to make it out. Only one winner is going to come out the valley. This is the final rumble with God. This is the world's chance to let God know how they feel about him and his desire to try to force them to submit to him and his ways. These nations and powers represent the competition They are the systems and sins and spiritual powers and social structures and sciences and academia and political schemes and entertainments and worldly pleasures, economic securities and promises of prosperity and happiness that compete and have been competing with God by acting like and treating and and demanding and ruling God's people and others like they are their God. They are the people and things and living ways that that, that have made you promises and who use God's people to, to, to promote their plans for you instead of God's plans for you. This is about competition to your sense of worth. Higher or lower. This is competition that that lures and tempts and abuses you and me. This is a competing voice for the Bible and God's word. These are the things and people and corporations and markets that have asked you to worship them, to bow down and give in to them, that have accepted gladly your money, your honor, your praise, your commitment, your time. I am talking about all that vies for and tears apart or can come between or muddy the relationship you and God have or should have. 
This is about God promising to call all that competes and has been bothering and derailing and irritating and tempting your soul away from him to the valley to be crushed. The valley name is changed from the valley of Jehoshaphat in verse 12 to the valley of decision in verse 14. Let me tell you what decision means here. It doesn't mean they have to make a decision. They already made it. Notice this decision has been made by God. God's decision, another translation is better, I read. This is the valley of verdict. So just a translation from the Bible. This is the valley of verdict. He is literally going to cut heads and crush. When it says, get the sickle ready, that means the heads of the crops are ripe, ready to go. And they know the Bible is so violent. Oh, it's real bad. This is the easy part. In fact, when it says the vats overflow, and in, 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 what is it in verse in the second half of verse thirteen? It is saying because the evil is great. It is saying that the evil against God and His people for all the life any of you have ever been to who are His people has been so heavy that even before the wine press starts squeezing the grapes of wrath, that the weight of the evil on each other is squeezing the grapes into the vats. God is going to dispose effortlessly and judiciously all who and that is against him and you and me who are his children. Simply put, sickness Prepare to be dealt a divine lethal blow. Sexual, physical, and substance abuse. Prepare to be done with in our lives. Pornography and sexual brokenness and identity and acceptance and rejection in those areas. Prepare to be crushed. Broken relationships, marriage, and family issues. Prepare to be cut out and down for all time's sakes. Financial struggle and, and insecurity and greed and stress and racism and sexism and ageism. God calls you to the valley of verdict. All those and those things who crudely exploit and makes God rule and people and expletive prepare to go down to Satan and all his demons gathering in pride, filled and fat on discouraging and, and treating God's people wrong. Get ready to be smashed for all that you and I struggle with. In our sins, in our lives, all that makes us question God and question our lives, a fatal blow is coming from the God of heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm hung up and I'm snagged by so much in this life. I'm tired. I'm tired of the, I got enough on the inside. I'm tired of the outside pressures and temptations in a world that makes me feel like less, like, like, like you. I want all that makes it hard to see and believe and live holy or to have peace with you and joy and contentment for all that outside of me makes it hard and impossible to do good and not sin. All the discouraging reality of sin, I want them to be done with. Every bulletin board. Every corporate board, every internet site, all war and poverty and perpetuators of oppression and hatred, things that lead me to lie, done with. 
in this scripture, God is promising to crush it for all time's sakes. The valley of decision or verdict you and I need to know and take hope because God has already sent out invitations and seating is filling up for that day when God will bring retribution, vengeance, destruction against all that competes for and abuses you, God's people, and thus disrespects him. But that is yet to happen. And I too get discouraged with some of you Christians and churches and preachers always talking about heaven and when it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but I want mine now. I want mine now. Now, I don't want to put down the fact that God gives us hope, a promised future, and that hope feeds our faith now. It feeds our ability to love each other and God now. I don't want to go down with that, but also, I also believe Joel is telling us that God is giving his people restitution now. Look at the second half of verse 16. We read the whole verse. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. This is a scary roar. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. He's a clearing. He is a God of restitution. What do I mean by restitution? He is restoring. It's the restoring of something lost or stolen. What has been lost and stolen from God's people? But goes back to what we saw in verses 1 through 3 that we read earlier. God's people in being made slaves by this world, even temporarily, and their land being taken, have lost their dignity as God's people and their ability, some of their abilities to live as God's people. Understand what went into being God's people back then. It was tied to the land, their ability to live and work in the promised land and have enough resources in that promised land to offer worship to God with crops, livestock, and their families. It was about being a people of God in a place where they are free to be what and how their God wanted them to be. God's people had their identity and mission stolen or taken away by these nations. But God is saying, even from the place of slavery, even as people separated from the promised land, from heaven, from everything perfect. I am still, get this, I am still going to stir my people up and move in them in a mighty way. So here we are. You and me, like them, living in a less than heavenly place. I'm not promising you heaven on earth. Ain't even heaven up in here this morning. Close, closer. God has not finished the guest list for the Valley of Verdict. We still live with people in a foreign place. We still live among the abuse and the suffering and the false and tempting promises. We are not finally and completely free. But God says in verse 16 that he is a refuge and stronghold in an unfinished, still harsh, still rough, still enslaving kind of world. See, a refuge is a home, a safe place when you are away from and can't go to home. And someone is after your life. A stronghold is a place to go when you're battling and fighting. It is a line of scrimmage. It is a settlement outside of the city. This is God securing, restoring his people's identity and dignity in him. Not in the world being nice or right or us being happy or things being easy or us being sin or some temptation free. 
This is about having a dignity that the present world can't take away. This is literally being hidden in God himself. That regardless of what the world makes you think, you are or makes you feel, even though you may look like a motherless child and an utter failure, a weakling according to this world's standards, as if God has left or failed you, God says he is a refuge and a stronghold, which means this, he will keep your dignity and your worth. He will hold you fast. He will not let you go. He will preserve you. He will give you and provide all the power and provision and ability to live in this world as people without worldly power and pleasure and money and even being the coolest people around. The fancy way we talk about this is perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. God will not lose his children in this world or have his children lose him in a world that loves to hate and hack at your sense of holiness that makes light of how small you are, that seeks to make you afraid because you are a woman or poor or, or, or feel like a nothing or financially struggling or not as smart or powerful. Let me warn you about what I'm about to say because this will not win many of you to Christ. Or sound like it will. Jesus do what he want. But I must tell you what the Bible says about God's people. I read the Bible a couple times. God's people will suffer and lose in this world. They will be mistreated. And it should be a shock that there are rich, powerful, happy Christians. Something wrong with so many rich, happy, happy Christians. They ain't that happy. They rich, happy, content, lying Christians. Because even if you're rich, you're still not happy because heaven ain't here yet. You'll be mistreated. It will be worse because you guys believe in things like forgiveness in heaven and sin. And you have to live in a world that's everything but. You have an unseen God. In a world where everything that is marketed is sensual and seeable and touchable. Believers do not promise wealth or strength or being tops or be able to predict when God will exactly fix everything bad or or that hurts or is pinning you. It sucks to be people of God according to a world that so disrespects you that they gather to battle him because looking at you, they think your God can't be that much. I'm not talking about a political stand or statement either. Don't go sideways. The world looks at believers and thinks it is so weakly represented by what you have, how much you control or have to offer as far as pleasure, that they think it is bad. Get this. They think it is bad and unhealthy for the human race to live and believe and worship in such weakness and lack of human control and faith in this unseen God of the Bible. They think, the world thinks it is their responsibility to stamp out such ignorant and irresponsible faith and identity like Christianity. And though believers are often losers, according to this world score sheet, they are never lost by God and never lose their God in this world through thick 
and then and suffering and slavery, God will keep them his most precious possession in the refuge of his care. God's grace travels, y'all. It is indispensable and shapes to any circumstance well. I remember when I was in college, man, I had some rough college days when I first started. Rough because I was acting bad. Rough because everything else, I mean, boy, the parties. What? (laughs) No more high school girls, college women. My Lord. Uh, uh, This ain't that sermon. I was cute, too. (laughs) Used to sport. Thanks, babe. I used, used to sport my Raiders hat. That was back in the day. Listen, my public enemy, KRS-One. I used to get lost. I didn't go to church for a whole semester because I couldn't get up on Sunday morning. But I remember coming home from college to the comfort of home. Anything college could bring in loneliness or identity, shaking, a plate of some chicken in the kitchen, listening and talking to mama as she was cooking at the stove. It could take you all the way back where you're supposed to be. You understand what the Lord is providing here, even in this fellowship, even in the church? Y'all out there. Y'all wrapped up in some wild stuff. I know some of y'all. Y'all thinking some really wild things. God, I'm, y'all are out there. Y'all are, like he says, you took my people to another nation. Y'all in a different nation. Sometimes as far as your hearts are concerned with the Lord and how you feel. But his word, his sacraments, the fellowship of his body, the Holy Spirit that goes with you wherever you go. I know we talk about God living in you, but we are talking about a God in the Holy Spirit who will hide you and keep you close to him. And you can go into him in his word, in his sacrament, in his fellowship. And like I went home, go be at home, even away from home. But Joel is also saying that there will come a day in a place and final and ultimate joy and peace. Need y'all to hang in there with me. It's worth it. It's worth it. When God brings final retribution and restitution so that we can enjoy his rewards. Look at verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Joel is saying that from God's great victory for his people in the valley and keeping them through this life, There remains a reward, a heavenly reward. But let me clear something about heaven and reward. 
The heaven Joel describes here and the Bible talks about has never been and it's not primarily about God's people's reward. Heaven is God's reward. It is God's reward for choosing and winning and keeping his people. And heaven's reward, God's reward is that in the end, he gets to have you and me, his people, finally all to himself. In verse 17, when it mentions the the stranger or the alien no longer will pass through, when it mentions that, it it, it means that no more person or theologies or philosophies or anti-God or anti-you stuff will be able to come into this place and time with God. No more competing forces for God's love and grace for you. In heaven, God is rewarded with having you all to himself and you and I benefit from being completely and wholly close to God and his blessings to finally, as the old folks used to say, know that you know that you know that you know that God is your God without question. You know what this is like? That real corny selfish puppy love. When you're jealous of everything and everybody, right? When I was growing up, we had a phone, regular phone, no cell phones. I remember I used to get on the phone. Hey, girl, what's up? You'd be talking. You'd just be so, oh, what? you in love. And then, boop, that beeping sound. Got a crossover click. Hey, yeah, can I talk to your dad? No! You can't talk to my dad. And then you got to give your dad the phone because they beeped in. And then later, I've tried it. Later, when they found out, you, they called and I said, Daddy's too busy. Oh, you're in trouble. So y'all to remember back in the day, we had to hold on. You had to hold on. Life was about holding on. You couldn't go to the internet. You couldn't do chat. You couldn't text. You couldn't Skype. You simply had to hold on. Right? So hold, I'm clicking back to my girl. Hey, girl. Hold on a minute. Shouldn't be too long. Click. Daddy gets the phone. And I'm just something. Hurry up. Hurry up. And every time I say, Daddy, Daddy, please. I've been wanting to try to get a date with this girl. Please, Daddy. Please. And my dad, man, please. I pay this bill. The worst thing you do is say, please, Daddy, because they're going to stay on longer. That's my phone. I do what I want. <laughs> and you're hoping she holds on. This is the kind of love where you're mad for the person calling your dad. You're mad at your dad. I wanted to knock the phone out of his hand sometimes. Give me my phone. I need to talk to this girl. <laughs> then I'm going to go with for two weeks and then break up, right? Like, this is the kind of love where you get mad of eating and sleeping, get in the way. Sometimes you'll be on the phone, folks sleeping. You know, you that girl? It is almost that sick, possessive stuff. Only this is not sick. This is pure, jealous, God love where he is finally satisfied. Where he finally and completely has you all to himself without anything beeping in. Where he no longer has to hold on and wait for you. To be done with some other conversation or some other thought pattern or some other love interest. God can finally have you. The line is completely clear. That is what he has been working for. What do you think God's doing? 
He wants you. He's clearing the world out to have you, his people. Oh, it's so hard to believe that. We think he's up there mad, trying to just be vengeful. No, he wants to be with the ones he loves. But not only getting you all to himself, let me finish up. Heaven's reward is about God getting to give you all that he's got to give you is heaven's reward. When we think about all this wine and this milk and all this beautiful stuff being poured upon God's people, don't you know why God wanted his people? Not so he could be mean to them and make it hard for them to live in this world. No, God wanted a people to bless them. He just wanted to be a blessing to them. To lavish his goodness on them. To, to spoil them. In heaven, God finally gets to completely pour out all his spoils on you. All that he has earned and created in this world muddied and broke and stole or destroyed or despised on you, his children. Heaven is God doing whatever he wants. Which is spoiling his children in a place where it can't be spoiled by us or anything else. He is overjoyed. And pouring holiness and goodness and the result of that all over and all around you. All the joy, all the pleasure, and finally, happiness. See, ain't no happiness to heaven. Because happiness is finally your desire and God's desire. Meeting up and then we happy. Heaven is God allowing you and me to open our gifts. And the reward is all his. To see your eyes and faces light up with his love. I think about my own father, how he told me how he was put in jail for civil rights, had to ride on the back of the bus, had to walk. Worked hard through all sorts of mess. Not for the joy of him having a long Lincoln or a fat crib. But his reward was buying me and giving me, providing me with what I couldn't have without his work and struggle. God crushed the evil of this world that stopped us and tempted us away from receiving his blessings. Closing now. This one just went a little long. It ends this way. Egypt shall become a desolate and eat him a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. This whole passage is a pre-Jesus prophetic time illustration of the cross. When Jesus came and went to die on the cross... Do you understand that he walked into the valley of decision? He went among the people, cursed by God in the valley of verdict. And the Bible says God crushed him. And the Bible tells us that on that day, just like in this passage, the moon turned dark and the sun black and the earth quake. On the cross, as verse 14 says... Jesus took on multitudes and multitudes of our sins on him. And at just the right time, when the vats of our sin and the harvest of our evil was in Christ, God broke him. God squeezed out of Christ the grapes of wrath. His blood flowed and his body was pierced in the valley of verdict when he died. And, and, and out of his body, out of his death, out of his blood squeezed body, sin 
This evil world and Satan and death were dealt, dealt a fatal blow. Out of his body came a refuge and stronghold. God's wrath on him for our sin produced heaven's joy. Heaven's hope, heaven's peace came out of Christ's crushing. The Bible says that for the joy, get this, the joy set before him, for the prize, for the reward of having you and me, for the prize of just blessing you and me, just to do so because he wants to. He entered willingly. The valley of verdict for us. And when he rose from the grave as a victor, he rose to receive his reward. To be forever. With you and me, his people. He is the God of reparation. This is the message of Joel. The message of Scripture. Let's pray.